This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. That is hammered. Oh, my. Man, that ball got out of here in a hurry. You know, anything travels that far ought to have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? This is a simple game. You throw the ball, you hit the ball, you catch the ball. You got it! You're listening to The Roundtable with Grant Brisby, Andy McCullough, and Mark Carrig on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode number 19 of The Roundtable. I'm Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy McCullough. Uh, we fired Mark Carrig for insubordination. Uh, is that what we're going with? Uh, yeah, or he's on vacation. I'm not either or. Fired for insubordination. Uh, <laughs> he was not correctly hewing to the party line. Now, Mark is on vacation. So it is a, I guess it's not a round table then, is it? It's like a very long, like in the first Batman, the 1989 Batman table. It's a two top, I think. <laughs> it's, it's welcome to the athletic MLB two top. <sighs> All right. Well, this is the round table. We're going to talk about baseball stuff. And it's good that we're doing this because we can officially judge the trade deadline. Like we have all the information we need. We know who won, who lost uh, in forever. We'll be talking about who won this deadline and we know it right now. So why don't you get us started? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, it's pretty clear. The Padres were big losers at the deadline. <laughs> um, they acquired, you know, some talent. But uh, it's very clear they can't compete with the Dodgers. And so tough for them. But, um, you know, maybe Soto will be back on the on the block this winter as the Padres realize the error of their ways in trying to win. After they rebuild, after they rebuild. Because uh, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't really watch any baseball at all if it's not the Giants. And so uh, I saw Juan Soto and he, he goes up to the plate. He's hitting 249. You aware of this? My guy's hitting 249 and the, he's like some sort of big deal. <laughs> He is. What's funny is... uh, I just, real quick, real quick. Please, everyone know that I'm kidding. All right, go, go, Andy, go. No, 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 no. no. (laughs) We got to lean into this. We we can lean into uh, just being absolute morons. Uh, The the funny thing about Soto is, like, um, he's having, obviously, a a down year, but he's, like, 10th in the majors in OPS. He's having, like, a a 25th percentile year for him, maybe even less than that. And, like, he's still, like, one of the 10 best hitters. I'm doing a mailbag for tomorrow, uh, which I guess would be today for Wednesday. There's some notably salty Dodgers fans who I think – it's kind of a weird place to be in if you're a Dodgers fan, right? Because, like, you sort of have to dislike the other teams, I guess. I guess that's how – not necessarily, but that's often how fandom works. And so there's sort of a, a distaste for how goofballs like us, you know, maybe the folks at like Sunday Night Baseball, you know, ESPN or whatever, sort of like make a big deal about the moves that the Padres are making when the Dodgers kind of didn't do a ton at the deadline and are like a notably better baseball team. And so there was some salty uh comments from Dodgers fans about like one was like uh, hey now that the Padres have been uh, officially crowned the most exciting team in baseball how will they celebrate this weekend (laughs) so yeah it's funny it's good times I mean they are the living embodiment of Don Draper in the elevator right you know I don't think about you at all but they do that's the thing that's the that's the thing 
And I think what a lot of people don't get about that scene is I think he kind of does care a little. You know, it's Don Draper. He's got his demons and the Dodgers do care. I will say that on this topic, I Googled my name and Padres won the offseason. And I came up with a headline, the wild offseason of the amazing Padres. The date, December 19th, 2014. Yep. Yep. Wow. And then, and then right after that, there's another headline. The Padres won the offseason 16 months ago, and then everything fell apart. <laughs> they traded They traded Trey Turner in the Will Myers deal, right? Yeah, they had to – gosh, they had Craig Kimbrell for a bit. They had Melvin <laughs> Upton Jr. Had Craig Kimbrell. Oh. Derek Norris. Like everyone's like really – Oh, yeah. Brandon Moore, Justin Upton. I mean, they're – yeah, it was, it was a big – it was a big deal. Now, to be very clear, none of these people are Juan Soto. Juan Soto was a very different. Now you've got Tatis. Now you've got Manny Machado was a legitimate. Like, it's different. But I I can understand why Dodgers fans might be a little salty. Okay, here we go again. Yeah, right. Because I think, you know, if you are if you are the Dodgers, right, like they've been watching the Padres kind of come swinging after them for several years now, and they still really haven't staggered them. You know, they probably came the closest in 2020 in the shortened season, but then they played in the playoffs and the Dodgers stomped them. Last year, you know, San Diego collapsed in the second half. I mean, again, like there was a lot of consternation on the baseball Twitter after Jason Stark had a really interesting column and he, you know, talked to an executive and a couple executives were sort of like expressing sort of uh, disbelief or just sort of, you know, wonderment at like how the Padres were going about things. And it's like, I wonder what their business model is. Right. And like, I think everyone, you know, looks at that quote is like, well, they're selling out the ballpark and they're trying to win. That seems like a pretty good business model. However, like there is a thread uh, that undergirds a lot of front offices. That's like, Hey, here's, we're going to hold these guys and we're going to not make, take these big swings because if you take big swings, sometimes you miss now, like, it's kind of tough to miss when you get Juan Soto for two and a half years, <laughs> but like I, I, I understand the sort of industry-wide amazement at their willingness to take chances, and they deserve credit for it, right? Like AJ Preller, Peter Seidler, they deserve credit for it. They're they keep on swinging, and maybe one day they'll they'll knock over the Dodgers, but they haven't gotten there yet. The Padres have been taking swings at the Dodgers so long that. I really think that that was a part of them retiring Steve Garvey's number. It was, it was seriously, you know, the Dodgers haven't retired Steve Garvey's number. The Padres have, and there's a sense of, yeah, guess what? He's got our moment now. You know, we're at the table and, you know, come on, why don't you pass the peas? I think it's been going on for a long time. I will say that the quote of what's their business model overlooks a lot of things where the Padres are in unique opportunity where you have no other of the major four sports teams there in San Diego. You got the Chargers are gone. You, uh, I think the Clippers moved a couple years ago. It's the Padres. And you're trying to build, whip up this excitement in a way that is comparable to what the Cardinals have done over the decades. You know, the just St. Louis isn't big. St. Louis, you know, they, they get that competitive balance draft pick every year. The Padres are trying to just build that foundation to where kids are coming back 10 years, 20 years down the road. I think that's the difference. Can that help them beat the Dodgers? Apparently not, but you know. 
that's the gambit. <laughs> it is, yeah, and it's an interesting gambit. I mean, I think with St. Louis, they do have the KMOX diaspora basically across the Midwest that you know goes like all the way. I mean, it's possible Arkansas is very close to Missouri, but in my mind, I think they're very <laughs> far apart. So sure. forgive me. I only lived in Missouri for two years, and I lived on the left side. So it's, it, anyway, or maybe it was a, I lived on the left side. Yeah. And I appreciate what San Diego is doing, but they have, they've made a series of decisions, right, that like a lot of other teams either couldn't or wouldn't do, you know, going to $300 million for Manny Machado, which looks like a really good deal so far. Like, you know, Manny Machado is a one of those classic sort of really high floor players. So even when he's having an off year, he's going to be good. And he's actually been pretty good for, you know, the first several years of this contract. Um, they went to 340 million for Fernando Tatis, which a lot of teams wouldn't do. They would just go year to year. That one's not working out as well so far. Um, and I think that, you know, we'll, it will be very interesting to see how the life of that deal goes. And most teams just don't even have the access to the sort of talent to acquire someone like Soto in trade. Um, and even some of the teams that did, you know, whether they're the Dodgers, the Yankees, um, the Cardinals, maybe the Mariners, they didn't really have, you know, like the, the, the Orioles, right? The Orioles have enough talent to get Juan Soto, but, the, you know, they didn't have the, the the interest, which is relatively understandable given where they are and they're, you know, building up. But the Padres just keep doubling down. They keep going for it. And at some point, right, as Ken Rosenthal wrote, like that's going to stop sustaining itself, but it's a pretty entertaining show <laughs> along the way. Right. And I, I wonder how to how to square that circle. I've never used that phrase in my life. I don't even know what nice. that means. I like that. But, but it, as far as if you're the Padres, what is the value? Because maybe this doesn't result in any championships. Maybe this is going to be like that 2014 offseason where I have no idea what their record was in 2015. I just know that it probably wasn't good. But what's the value of getting a fan base just whipped up? For a couple years, win, lose, finish second, finish first, whatever, you are the talk of the town for at least a couple years. You are, hey, you are water cooler team uh, squared. What's the value of that? Not just in 2023, not in terms of 2025 ticket sales, but in 2037, this kid is caring about the Padres where he might otherwise not have because it's a generational thing now. I have no idea how to quantify that. And I'm mostly just spitting words out, but I think that there is some sort of value to that. Well, there is, but you can also ask Royals fans how far that goes. But when I think of the Royals, I still think of a, of a franchise that is not totally decimated, that there's still some goodwill in that ballpark. Right. Uh, that's when you think of the Royals. You don't watch them play. <laughs> Okay. You, you are like me, right, <laughs> who who imagines that this, the franchise just folded after I left town in, you know, January of 2016. So I, I, I think it's a great point, and it's, it's a, it is a sort of gamble, gambit, bet that a lot of, of the smaller market teams, and hey, San Diego is a smaller market, right, television-wise, have made over the years, right? They've, they've pushed in and just really tried to maximize their – winning potential. I think what the difference was, well, you know, it's interesting. Like the, I guess the difference for the Royals is that there was not a super team standing in their way, right? The Detroit Tigers were a very good team for, you know, the first half of the 2010s, but they were very much fading by 2014 when the Royals first, you know, made the world series. And by 2015, the team had faded. Max Scherzer left. They hadn't done a good job in player development. 
and there wasn't, you know, Cleveland was sort of on the rise, but not ready yet. And so there was kind of a window for there to, for them to slip in. It's kind of tough to envision the Dodgers letting go of the top spot in the West. Again, I can think of at least one idiot on this podcast who wrote that it was pretty much over after uh, 2021. I can't remember what his name was. Uh, I think I think Drake. he was very ha- no, he was very handsome. So oh, I think yeah. yeah, it was all you know. There's only so many options, right? There's 50-50. <laughs> if you look at where the Royals are now, where they're kind of mired in this rebuild, unfortunately, I think a lot of that goodwill goes away. I think that goodwill is is more fleeting now as you know fandom is just less deeply rooted i mean like no one's i know talking to on occasion i still hear from from royals fans and they they look back so fondly on those two seasons but i think in some ways it it makes the current product almost more painful to watch i'm not saying that's the way the padres are going but that is right that's the bet right it's like we're gonna we're gonna try and really go for it right now and then ride it out after we get there This is a very, very good segue because now we can talk about a team that is not doing what the Pontys are doing. They are being pragmatic. They are being practical. They're looking a couple years down the road and saying, okay, if we can't sign this guy, here is how we can maximize his value now. I'm talking about Josh Hader and the Brewers. It's a very disparate set of circumstances where you have two contending teams Two teams that maybe are in smaller markets and they have a bully in the division. Uh, the Cardinals are a different kind of bully than the Dodgers, but it's still a historical bully. The Brewers made the decision to, okay, we, we're we not going to sign a reliever to a $100 million deal. That's just not in our DNA. So let's trade him. Let's do something practical. And so far, it's it seems like there's, I don't know if it's a clubhouse mutiny, a fan mutiny, It's not working out so far. It's not the greatest decision as of a week after the deadline. But can you point to that and say, but they're trying to be sustainable. Like, that's pragmatic. I find this trade to be really interesting. And not that I think my own thoughts are all that interesting. um, (laughs) But I, I, I feel like the sort of process I went through on this trade reminded me of some of the things that I have lost by not being a beat writer, uh, if that makes sense. And so, like, when I saw this trade, and it's like Taylor Rogers, a couple of prospects, possibly some, and Denelson Lamette, who was like immediately DFA'd or whatever, for Josh Hader. I was like, I love this trade for Milwaukee. Because Hader has limited his own value by refusing to pitch more than one inning. So when you think of Josh Hader as this elite reliever, you think of him as the guy from 2018 who could come in in the seventh inning, in the sixth inning, who could pick up six outs, who could just wipe out, you know, the top half of a, of a lineup in a really high leverage spot. He doesn't do that anymore. He pitches the ninth. He tries to get saves. The Brewers had had dialogue with him about maybe being a little more flexible. He wasn't up for it. So you take his value. It's limited, right? He's a one inning guy and you know what inning it is. So given that, right, you exchange that for Taylor Rogers, who is a pretty, his results have not been great this year, but the underlying stuff all suggests that he's perfectly fine. They picked up Matt Bush. They picked up uh, another reliever. I forget who, but they did enough where it's like, I actually maybe like their bullpen a little bit more on August 3rd than I did on, you know, July 31st, right? I'm like, I, this is great. This is so smart. And then I started seeing the videos of the interviews from the Brewers Clubhouse. And like Devin Williams is just sort of like gobsmacked. Like is literally just like, I don't know what to say, you know? And even the guys who were a little more 
forthcoming were, you know, Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff. I mean, there was, they were not happy. And a clubhouse mutiny is strong, right? But like, you have to really have guys bought in to do something like this. And, uh, you know, Craig Council and David Stearns have done a really, really good job with that club. They are contending every year on a not great budget. They tend to make good decisions. There's a lot of people in baseball who think Council is the best manager in the sport. But it's still really tough to trade Josh Hader. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in the whatever, you know, six games since then, they've gone one and five. And I think Devin Williams is like taking the loss in like two of them, possibly three. Matt Bush took the loss in one of them. Like it'll probably recorrect itself, right? He's really, Williams is a really good pitcher, right? He can pitch the ninth. And so what I thought about was how little you understand these things as a national person who's not in the room you know, talking to these guys. And yeah, that was a deal that I like loved on August 2nd. And like a week later, I'm like, man, these guys don't know what they're doing. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit in a much different scale, much different circumstances. But when the Mariners traded Kendall Graveman last year uh, for Abraham Toro, where it was pragmatic, it was, okay, you could see why they're doing it. You're Here's the X's, here's the O's. But the clubhouse was going, Man, Kendall Graveman was a dude. He just made every late inning, just you felt confident. And then once Abraham Toro, at least last year, he started hitting a little bit and that was okay. And then a little bit of winning solves those those quandaries and you move on a little bit. Taylor Rogers might be as effective as Hater if you're looking at a pure you know, run prevention standpoint, as a bat missing standpoint, maybe not. But if you're looking to prevent runs, you can make the argument that here's his value and here's Hater's value, and it's it's negligible and everything's on. But the feeling of we have to get to Hater and Williams, and that's the only way we can win this game. That was a different feeling than we have to get to Taylor Rogers and Hater, uh, or Devin Rogers and, and Devin Williams and Rogers. It reminds me of a team, and I'm going to go way back, and I'm not sure if you know this team, but when you're talking about Wade Davis and you're talking about the Royals bullpens of 2015, 2014, that was a different feeling. That was a shortened game, and it was kind of almost like a, like a, a cliche, but it felt so true, and that's what the Brewers had, and I feel like they've lost a little bit of that, even internally. That might be what they're thinking. It's a great point, and I talked to A.J. Hinch about this once, and Hinch had been the manager of the Astros in 2015 when they kind of took the Royals to the brink and then lost in the first round. And what he described about that team, and I thought encapsulated what they do well, what the Rays to an extent do well, what the Brewers, when when you have a team that has a really shut down bullpen and or a team like uh, St. Louis that catches the baseball. But when you when you combine all of that, which is what the 15 Royals had, is they had a really good bullpen, they caught the baseball. They put pressure on you. Pressure, pressure, pressure. From the first inning on, you feel like we need to score here in these first couple innings because if they get the ball to Kelvin Herrera in the seventh, it's over. And that affects your bats. That affects the decisions you make on the bases. With the Royals, there was also an extent of the offense. They put pressure on you. But it was just this constant. It's, you look at the numbers and you're like, these guys aren't as good as their record suggests. But there was a way that they sort of squeezed, like, like they input anxiety on their opponents. And I think, you know, talking to some hitters, hitting coaches or whatever about facing the Brewers, it's like, yeah, you, you feel – it's it's tight because you know they're going to be they're going to have a good starter at the top and they're going to have a lockdown bullpen at the end and 
again, what you said about Rogers, and I believe you were talking about uh, Tyler Rogers and Mitch Williams uh, was the two you were thinking of. <laughs> Man, I, every time I say Rogers, I don't know which one's if it's Trevor, Tyler, Taylor. Like that's a mess. So if I got it right or wrong, I, I absolve myself. It's uh, Kenny Rogers and Billy Williams, <laughs> but. Again, like if you took it, take Taylor Rogers on a per inning basis, right? You could even argue he's been, you know, maybe better than Hader this year if you look at some of the underlying stuff. But it doesn't feel the way it does when Josh Hader is coming into the game. It's going to be very interesting to see how Milwaukee sort of responds in the next couple of weeks because I think it's an understandable hiccup. But, you know, the Cardinals are playing pretty well, the Cardinals have a, a better lineup. And Milwaukee lost those games against like the Cubs and the Pirates. You know, these are the games you sort of need to win if you're trying to win the Central. And so it really is, you know, if you if you go out into the macro picture, right, and not just the specifics of this trade, but like the sustainability versus going for it, it's a it's a constant struggle that I think executives in that tier of team have to deal with and it's often you know set by ownership right like they tell you how much you can spend and so it's it's not totally their decision but they have to work within the confines and that's why what is you know san diego a team who is probably belongs in that class in terms of like revenues or whatever that their owner's willingness to just be like no man let's just like spend a ton of money trying to catch the dodgers like why it's novel and why I think fans and maybe even the national media respond to it because while it is real, like I genuinely find the idea of threading the needle to be kind of interesting. And I think having these discussions, you know, about like, what is it worth to turn a dollar into four quarters? You know, like I, I find that stuff to be interesting, but also there is something appealing of like seeing what the Padres are doing and then contrasting that with the Red Sox. And you're sort of like, okay, I understand one of these. Like, I, I definitely get what's going, but like, can someone explain to me what Boston is doing? You're describing the Padres as if they are the, uh, let's just do it and be legends quote, you know, that the internet loves. and it, They it's, kind of are. Yeah, but it's that, but they're also serving like really good lunches and not the Firefest, like, you, you know, tomato on a piece of bread lunch. And it's, it's really, it's fascinating to me. I, I do think that it's, you're not remembering those thread the needle trades as fondly. No one's going back and going like, remember when the A's traded Yannis Cespedes and and John <laughs> Le- you know John Lester Kit like, and they had all those convoluted ways to thread that needle. They had like seventeen All Stars that year, and they ended up disappointing, and then they you know, tumbled a little bit. So no one likes those deals. I don't like those deals. It's practical. It's pragmatic. It's forward thinking. But at the same time. It's way better as an idiot talking into a microphone and as a, a very smart person listening to idiots talk on the microphone <laughs> to just have a team say, we're giving you all our prospects for Juan Soto and Josh. It's so that's it's, it's an easy mark. I think if the Giants did one of those trades, while maybe you wouldn't look at it as fondly or you wouldn't be like, ah, this is cool, you would get it, you know, because you spend a lot of time mired in the Giants and it's that whole beat writer versus national guy thing um i will say by the way um the padres are serving an edible lunch however like they're like pythag only has them like four or five games over 500 so like let's just you know like let's 
let's see them get out of the first round first. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think it's just more uh, perception, but they are, uh, let's see, they're 10 games over 500. Their Pythagorean is 59 and 53. And I just have a hunch, uh, the Giants, 57, 52. So pretty close. Oh, I bet you that makes you feel good. No, well, you know, I'm a professional uh, dump on the Giants guy now. Like, I am back to my roots. It is back to Brian Sabian not signing Vladimir Guerrero and making weird trades for, uh, what were the, I don't know, signing Marlon Bird. I don't know. I've got, I've got all these thoughts. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. I know you don't want to talk about the Giants no, because this is, your, this is your escape from the Giants. <laughs> Has the sort of general fan base kind of officially turned against this regime again? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah. no. It is, it is dark. Uh, my timeline is dark. Uh, there is hashtag fire Farhan. Um, oh, there is... Uh, that's brutal. Every If I write uh, an article about, I don't know, uh, a minor league free agent signing, right away the comments are just a big fist fight between people who are mad and people who are like, calm down. And it is uh, funny. But it's also, it's really sudden. And I thought that there was going to be a little bit more goodwill that last year bought. And I have an article planned for the next time they lose. They've actually been on a little winning streak, so I can't write this article. But how much goodwill does the uh, the second half of 2020 and the uh, the entire 2021 20, season, how much does that buy? And that's that thing you're talking about where the Royals all of a sudden, that goodwill, it, it was maybe a little bit more fleeting than we thought. And, and I'm talking about the Padres building up all this goodwill and it's going to last for generations. And it's like, no, maybe like two bad months and everyone's just sick of that team. Part of me wonders, like, um, would it have been better for the long-term trajectory of the franchise if they won like 87 games last year? And then if they won 86 or 88 or whatever, which they might do this year, then you can say, like, hey, look, you know, we're just steady progress. You know, because, like, this team was in such a bad state, you know, 17-18, you know, when Zaidi took over, that there's almost like – it's like the 107 wins it was acted as like a mind eraser or something, you know. It, like, cleared the memory of how – far behind the club was both in terms of on field and farm and so now that they've regressed which i think is somewhat predictable i mean i think that part of the problem is that they've regressed in a way that's kind of like hard to watch it's interesting you know it's interesting how sequencing in baseball matters so much even even just in terms of like how you sequence your good years you know did you have your good season as a platform you know, going into free agency, or did you have it two years before? I don't know. Like, I feel like if the Giants had won 83 games last year and they were playing like this this year, you know, you could you could spin it differently. It's like, hey, look, look at all the stuff we got coming in the farm. We got all this money coming off the books. Like, we're going to, you know, we can get Aaron Judge. But now it's sort of like, this crap doesn't work. I'm tired of platoons. <laughs> It's kind of like that in in some respects because for a long time, Giants fans were looking toward this past offseason with this eye of all the money except for Evan Longoria is coming off the books. This is the offseason. They're going to go bling, blam, blammo, and they're going to just rule the offseason. They're going to rule it, and that didn't happen. And it's easier now that the Giants aren't performing up to expectations to go back and cherry pick, well, they should have signed Gossman, they should have signed Scherzer, and that overlooks, well, what if they had signed Castellanos and Story, Marcus Simeon, that wouldn't have been as hot. You would have the same team with a, a much worse future outlook. 
I used to be so frustrated with Yankees fans because they would care about baseball the year after they won a World Series. <laughs> and as the fan of a team that had never won the World Series since they had moved to San Francisco back then, I just could not grasp why that was possible, how that was possible for a team to look and be so invested when you just won. Like, take a take a gap year. You get to enjoy and relax. And then I realized after watching the Giants be so successful that it doesn't matter if you just won. You're spending three hours a night with these this group of bozos. And if they are not winning, they're making your night worse. And then they do it again the next night and the next night. And it takes like a month of bad three-hour trips to be like, all right, that's it. I'm done. What is this hobby for anyway? I hate baseball. And that's, it's just so natural. And I finally get it now. It's just, it's the curse of uh, just everyone's going to be disappointed at some point. I think that that reminds me of my favorite uh, Roger Angel essay, uh, you know, three hours with the bozos, in which he (laughs) laments what a garbage sport this is. And can't believe I have to watch this crap. And how come there's not a clock? Yes. Uh, the poet laureate of baseball. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that was a blog post I wrote in 2008. I can't remember. But <laughs> I do think that there are fan bases that have the privilege of only caring about like winning the World Series, right? Because your team has been so good for so long that you are so equipped to them being there every year in October. And, you know, you only care about winning the World Series. I don't think all Dodgers fans are like this, but that's kind of the Dodgers fan mode, right? Like, have you won the – you only won the World Series once, you know, during this incredible reign. And, like, the Yankees have been really competitive. I think no team won more games than the Yankees in the 2010s. Maybe the Dodgers did, but whatever. The Dodgers and the Yankees were the two best teams of the 2010s, right? Neither team won a World Series. Both fan bases view those – decades as failures right the cardinals are in that place the astros to some extent i think have reached that place although i think there's still sort of an us against the world vibe there that maybe makes it a little less you know a little bit different but i think the giants right like the giants with what they did in the previous decade moved into that sort of space where you can no longer say like oh it's a nice season if we get to the postseason it's like no this is you know we want to keep winning and so it's like that 107 win season is sort of like magical and miraculous and, you know, really like aesthetically pleasing as it was. It doesn't count for all that much. Like it just, it just doesn't. And you're seeing it, right? If it counted for something, there wouldn't be people calling KNBR, you know, saying Zaidi and Kapler have to go. And again, with the platoons, we are sick of these platoons. You called it a privilege, and I find that interesting because i it's almost more of a curse <laughs> to have that mindset. Seriously, because it is, you're talking about the Giants, who before they won the World Series in 2010, what were the greatest San Francisco Giants moments where a Giants fan could talk? It was Brian Johnson's homer in 1997 that allowed them to tie the Dodgers in a division that they would actually, the Giants would go on to win and then disappear a week later because they lost to the Marlins. It was this one regular season game, but it was perfect. Perfect, because that was a moment. It, it, they knew they weren't going to win the World Series ever, but that moment was perfect. A, a Joe Morgan knocking them out in 1982 was perfect because it knocked the Dodgers out. And that was a memory that you carried on. If you're a, a Red Sox fan, everyone forgets that the Red Sox lost Game 7 of the World Series after Carlton Fisk's home run, after he's waving it fair, right? We talked about that. You're 
putting too much of an emphasis on that championship. And I don't like that. It is, am I going to sit here and tell a Mariners fan that watching Edgar Martinez's double, it's very cute. It doesn't have the same resonance as it does, you know, my memories are superior. No, man, like that double is transcendent. That is, they were never going to beat the Yankees ever, ever. And they did. And those moments, I think, should get more more love, more love. I don't know. I think it's a curse to just have the championship or bust mindset. I think that's definitely a way to view it, right? But I think if you're a Mariners fan, you'd love that curse. If you're a Cincinnati Reds fan, it's like, hey, man, where's the witch? Put that spell on me, man. That's awesome. <laughs> you know? Because, be, be, you know, because, like, the alternative is bleak. I grew up in Philadelphia, and the Phillies ended up getting – good by the time I decided I didn't like baseball and it wasn't an interesting sport. <laughs> so like I kind of missed all that. But when I was a kid and I turned on the Phillies, like they were just, you know, it was like Mickey Moore and Dini and they were down seven to four every night. You know, they stunk. And that like that's bleak. You know, it's bleak having bad teams go out there and it's and and it's bleak when ownership isn't trying and you know it's bleak when like you start the season feeling like what is the what am I watching this for? like what is this? Like are they gonna contend is there going to be and and so that's why when uh, I you know we keep coming back to San Diego but they were a team who was in that bucket for a good long while you know as you said right like they really resided in that sort of underclass of the sport and while the actual on-field success has not matched the hype like not even close at the very least they are trying and they are trying to offer their fan base a reason to continue watching that is, I think, what I'm going to be writing about the Giants today is the hope for the rest of the season is not so much, oh, you're going to win, you're going to be 16 games over 500 for the rest of the year and you're going to scramble into the second wild card spot. I just want to watch a watchable team again. It's less tethered to the overall success. But if I can watch a team for three hours and feel like, ah, they just missed it or, oh, wow, you know, they came up short. The other team made a great diving play and it didn't work out. I want to see a team that loses because the other team does well <laughs> rather than watching a team that is just swallowing rosin bags and falling down manhole covers like that's the difference, and that's what the Giants are haven't offered this year. That's what, if you're a team, if you're watching a team that is doing that, that's the product that they're offering for you. It doesn't matter if you won the World Series last year. It doesn't matter if you're a Yankees fan and you can say 26, 27 championships or whatever. It doesn't matter because you have to watch three hours of a team that's actively trying to offend you. Once you can get over that hump, then it becomes a different story. If I've learned anything in the last 15 minutes, it's the Giants are really doing a number on you. Like you really don't <laughs> like watching them play baseball. It's just a different kind of bad. It's not like you're pointing at, oh, this one pitcher, he doesn't belong. It's like a group effort of you know, whoopsie doodle. <laughs> and a group effort of whoopsie doodle is much harder to watch than not having the personnel. I don't know. Maybe I've gone on a rant. I was going to make a point about the Warriors, too. I can just do all the hits. For sure, yeah. I, 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 do, <laughs> I do. I have spent time over the years thinking about what is the worst. If you're going to have a team that has one big problem, and it prevents you from being a winning team. What's it, what is the, the area of the game that is the most frustrating to have it in? I think for the actual team, it's the bullpen. But I think for the fans, it's either the uh, starting rotation, because you turn on the game and they're already getting their ass kicked, or it's the defense, because 
most fans, myself, you know, included, I mean, I could, I could have caught that. Like I, <laughs> like I could, I mean, what, do they not know the cutoff man's right there? Like the, the exasperation of that, I think, and the sort of the existential dread you feel every time the uh, other team makes contact and you're like, there should be an outfielder there, but well, we'll see what happens when the camera angle switches. Like, I think those four fans are the most uh, difficult to watch. I have thought about this conundrum for a decade, decade plus, but I always framed it as a three-parter. It was, you have the all-hit, no-pitching team, you know, those old Rangers teams where you would have Juan Gonzalez and Pudge Rodriguez, but they would, Rick Helling is your best starter or whatever. And those were frustrating, but then you'd have teams like the 2009 Giants where you had Linscombe and Kane, and then they just couldn't score a run. But then you had teams that have awful bullpens, like pick a Phillies team, the National before they won the World Series were constantly that team, especially in the postseason. But I think it might be the defense. And it's for a lot of the reasons you're saying uh, where it just, it's I can catch a ball. I catch a ball every day, just about, you know, I can, I can make a throw. I can make a throw. I do it a lot. I do it several times a week. But it's almost like the reverse of that thing you're talking about with the Royals, the 2015 Royals, where the pressure that they would put on other teams the second you have that blooper fall in between a couple outfielders, then that pressure starts up, but it's on yourself. And it's, the fans are feeling it. And you're watching that and you're going, here we go again. Here we, And it becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. But there is nothing more frustrating than a team that just cannot catch the baseball. The all-hit, no-pitch team is fun. Every night, it's an arcade game. The all-pitch, no-hit team is noble. Like there is something, <laughs> there's something sort of like classically masculine about that, right? <laughs> like I don't know, that's a stupid way of putting it. No, it's a Greek, <laughs> there, it's Greek yeah, mythology. There's something heroic about this, you know, about Tim Lincecum going out there knowing he's going to get negative run support tonight, right? Sisyphus pushing like, the yeah, boulder exactly. up the hill. And he's like, come on, get on my back. You know, Clayton Kershaw once he he once won a game where like he. He like threw a shutout and like hit a single up the middle, and it was like, yeah, he conquered. <laughs> it was probably the Padres. You know, it was like, yeah, oh, he conquered the Padres. Uh, there is nothing good from the fan perspective about having a team that can't catch the baseball. It just drives you nuts. It just drives you nuts. That is entirely true. And the Giants have at, like leveled up this idea by adding just bozo base running. <laughs> So, like, it'll be all of a sudden there's a rally and then you've got a Luis Gonzalez says, I'm going to tag and I'm going to score from second on a pop fly to shortstop. Like, no, 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 no. So you have just a lot of those things. But, yeah, when you're watching for three hours, I think the all offense, I have an appreciation for the all hit, no pitch team because you never feel like you're quite out of it. You're mad at your pitchers, but you're thinking, well, we're only five down. Let's let's see what happens in the bottom half of the inning, suckers. And then sometimes it's it's validated. So, yeah, I think if you're going to have a taxonomy or if you're going to have a power ranking, that's the way to go. For, <laughs> yeah, I just love the, the they've inserted bozo base running into the equation this year. <laughs> just like, hey, what if we spiced it up, huh? Yeah, and it's also with just a little sprinkle of a, a bullpen disillusionment. So it's it's all those ways because a bullpen, that's and I keep going back to this, but baseball is like it's it's a fun sport. I love the sport. It's it's uh, 
There's a lot of reasons why I'm a baseball writer, but it, it, it's also a long night if you're going to watch a three-hour game. And if you watch for two and a half hours and you think you know the result and you know you've already penciled this game into the win column and then the bullpen blows it, you feel like an asshole for choosing that as your hobby. And if they do it the next night, you feel even worse. And so if you're doing defense and bullpen, and then you throw in the occasional you whoopsie doodle on the base pass. I've said whoopsie doodle, and I have said uh, bozo. It's the bozo whoopsie doodle podcast. <laughs> you know, Brisbane McCullough. Yeah, I uh, I appreciate this. You know, it's I find these conversations to be very interesting because I, I think we, we – like, I never, like, watched – baseball as a fan like i just never like i started watching <laughs> baseball when i was a beat writer right so like i have the exact same frustration when uh the the you know when bullpen blows a save in the ninth but i actually don't care which team it happened for i'm just mad like i'm mad at delete key delete key delete key. either one <laughs> i'm like i can't believe i'm like this is so annoying you know i gotta rewrite what i wrote <laughs> So it's just displaced. It's 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 anger, but it's 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 put in a different. Uh, I've never on deadline felt like yes, I that that outcome was great. It's always just been like, all right, let's just get through this, please. Part of my my niche and my beat and my the whole reason why I'm here and I have this job is because I come at it with the perspective of a fan. But as I've become a, a jaded professional, I am also now in that realm of where I'm trying to straddle that fence. But there are times where if the Giants are losing, but I have the right read and I have the oh, correct yeah. take and I've got the narrative that I want, and then they start coming back, it's like, Fellas, could you not? Uh, <laughs> I've really, na- I've really nailed why you guys suck. If you just would keep sucking, I would have the perfect article for you. All you got to do—it's a just an old sports writer trick. You just stick with the lead you had first three or four graphs, and then just insert a graph, or so it seemed, and then just <laughs> rewrite. Just drop a, just drop the or so it seemed, and and you're good. Yeah, you're good. Or so it see. Oh, I like that. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Just, just drop and be like, oh, well, you know. Nevertheless, uh, we keep, you know, we we persist. <laughs> Sometimes I I have written and read enough game stories, I can spot an or so it seemed when I when it, when it comes. I I know there's no chance that this is what you wanted to happen in this game based on this lead. Like, and you you wrote this top and said, I'm sticking with it. I don't care what happens in front of me. This is this is going in tomorrow's paper. I probably do that and my crutch is and then the baseball gods. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. But baseball is a sport that <laughs> likes to be a trickster, you know. And then, and, oh my gosh. Yeah, I have done more than my, my share of those. This is not what we were talking about because I'm going to have to do a show with just Mark at one point. And I feel like I know you just a hair better than I know Mark, just by virtue of being in press boxes with you occasionally. So I feel like when it's going to be Mark and myself, that it's going to be like when George and Elaine have to go to Mark's <laughs> coffee shop and without Jerry and being like, uh. but with you and I, it, hey, we're, we're just uh, baseball bros. Yeah, we're well, just chit- chatting. unlike Mark, both of us have been inside a press box in the last five years. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's very different. You guys will be great. You guys will be great. And maybe I'll heroically call in to continue my streak of never missing a podcast, unlike both of you. 
Yeah, no, you're the glue. You're the glue, and now the glue's leaving us. And it's just going to be Mark and I going, uh, so Andres Biedrins, man, that guy, I thought he had more talent, and Jason Richardson should have made an all-star team. It's all going to be Warriors. I think it would be a good bit that uh, hopefully our podcast overlords wouldn't notice. If you guys just talked Warriors <laughs> for 45 minutes, like just war, and then like the social team tried to pull out a clip, and they were like, where the – was it? Did they talk? Like what's going on? And it's just you guys talking, you know – David Lee for 45 minutes. I don't want to speak for the bosses above my boss's bosses, but I think if you're presenting people who make decisions, financial decisions for the athletic, if you presented them more baseball content or more Warriors <laughs> content, they're going to jump at the Warriors content. I think I might uh, I might become a fan favorite of, of the ruling class if I do that. Well, that's good. I, I, I wish you the best of luck. All right. This has been episode 19 of the Roundtable. We will be back next week. Are you gone next week? Is that why yeah, we're teasing I'll be, this? Yeah, I'll be on the road for a story. All right. Me and Mark Craig next week. We're going to be – does it work as well as it does this time? You have to tune in to find out. We'll see you then. <laughs>